Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Friends, I'm so excited to share this episode with you, uh, me in conversation with my good friend, the philosopher, theologian, Lacanian, Hegelian, uh, Peter Rollins. Peter and I have been friends for a really long time, and you would think that being friends with each other for so long, we would almost exhaust the conversations of ideas that we have, but it never seems to happen. And one of the really interesting things is that Peter's perspective, which comes a lot from psychoanalysis and continental philosophy, has so much in common with mine, which is really rooted in the occult and esoteric Christianity, But there are differences that are key and foundational differences, which make for great conversation because we can just keep teasing out those differences and think about why is it that (laughs) we have so much in common and yet feel so different, and yet those differences make us want to have conversation more. Not because we are getting into disagreement or debate but rather because we're just meeting one another again and again and again. It takes a kind of faith in a friend to be able to do that. If you listen to the previous episode with Caitlin Doty, you'll hear something similar. I mean, Caitlin and I come from very different perspectives when it comes to death. And on that episode, we also talk about love. And yet there's this dance of excitement and enthusiasm going on. And it's something that I really hope people take away from this podcast, which is that there's an entire art to conversation, an entire livingness to conversation that happens when we don't try to debate or disagree, but rather just take an interest in one another. And that's ultimately what this episode uh, ends up sort of landing in. Um, on this episode, Peter and I both talk about three experiences that we've had, which were profound experiences for our spiritual lives that then informed, you know, how we talk about things, what we do in the world, um, how we share (laughs) the truths that we ponder over, uh, explore and deepen our capacity for understanding in our own lives. And, I'll tell one story, and then Peter will ask me questions about it and interpret it, and then he'll tell a story, and I'll ask him questions about it and interpret it. And each of us has three stories, and we sort of chart the progression of each of those stories and what they have in common. I really loved having this conversation because what I really strive to get across here is that I do my best to make sure my ideas are coming truly from me that I speak them because they're true, and they're true because I speak them. Not that I've just read something and then I'm spitting it out, but rather that it's tumbled around (laughs) in my being and experience again and again. And so I think by rooting these ideas in experiences that we've had, you can see how they emerge from real presence of being, instead of just pondering over stuff, knocking around some ideas, which is something that I think is fun, but 
takes the stage too often in our culture with a sense of real certainty and urgency. Whereas when we have experiences that grow into perspectives, ideas, and even offerings, it comes with a sort of quietness or at least <laughs> at least a care, a compassion, a friendliness, and a warmth that doesn't need to be forced on to anybody. Um, and so that's how this episode goes. I, I don't have some big, long intro for this one. A lot of times I reflect at the beginning of the episode, but this time I just wanted to frame it for you and just tell you what we were doing because <laughs> we hung out during the day and we sort of were like what are we going to talk about should we talk about god the environment should we talk about zizek you know what whatever it was and then at a certain point i realized no i just want to hear about your life and i want to hear about the progression or uh the recursion or the reoccurrence of revelation in your life and i want to talk about that in my life too in other words i want to get to know you better my friend I hope this inspires you to have conversations like this in your own life with people that you know. Against Everyone with Connor Abib exists because people support it on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Please do support the show, engage in an economic model that is really fair and compassionate and doesn't demand that I grind out content, but instead just says, I like what you're doing. It has value in my life. Here's how much I can give. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, so patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Also, please support the show by subscribing to it. Really, that does make a difference. Um, leaving a five-star and positive review on Apple Podcasts and by telling people about it. You can also buy my novel, Hawk Mountain, if you want. That's out there. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm very excited about some of the recent attention the novel's been getting, so um, I hope that you'll read it or listen to it uh, as an audiobook. All right, that's it, everybody. Um, I'm very excited to share this episode with my friend Peter Rollins with you. everyone this is against everyone with connor habib hello peter rollins again hello how's it going i'm in your house the humble dwelling of connor habib it's beautiful it's very humble yes yeah yeah the swimming pool doesn't isn't very humble yeah and the helicopter pad yeah, yeah. and that's just the first floor of the swimming pool yeah. um so i wanted to do something a little different with you today because we've done so many different kinds of podcasts together and events together. But one of the things that we don't really go into that much is our own lives with each other on podcasts. Obviously, we talk about it in real life. Now, actually, I know nothing about you or your life. You know, yeah. you're a mysterious stranger. Um, no. Yes, that's um, right. But I would like to sort of talk about formative events in our lives when it comes to uh, spirituality and our spiritual perspectives and also how they differ. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about 
three formative events in my life, and you'll talk about three in yours, and then we'll ask each other questions about them. Mm. Not with any sort of attempt to, you know, uh, reframe them or argue or disagree, but rather just to kind of hear and understand and say what comes up for us when you and I say each other's experiences to present two different pictures of spirituality and how they play out. Does that sound mm. all right? That sounds great. Oh, I love phew, it. Thank God you said yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so shall I start or do you want to start? You start. Okay. I think I'll start with um, a really early, so it's maybe, thir- I would say 13. No, I must have been a little bit younger or older than that because I, uh, anyway, there was a store near where I grew up in Pennsylvania called the Occult Emporium. And my sister had a friend who was kind of like bad, like she did, you know, <laughs> bad stuff. <laughs> like she was a bad influence or whatever. She was cool, but she was kind of, yeah. was bad. and her, her mom was out of town. And so she was like, I'll drive you guys to Occult Emporium and we'll go there. We weren't really allowed to go to a place like that. I wasn't even used to being in the car that a, a teenager was driving or whatever at that point in my life. So she drove us there and <clears throat> my sister went in with her, but there was a sign that said something like no one under 18 admitted. So they were 16. So they went in, but I obviously was not 18. So I waited, like you would go down the stairs and there was a little kind of almost foyer lobby area, just very tiny. And then you could walk into the door of the shop. I saw them open the door and I looked in and some of the things I saw were so intense. And then I was also looking at, there was a bulletin board. What I saw inside, and this was just briefly because it was right near where they opened the door. There was a lion's heart in a jar (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it was floating in like formaldehyde and it was like $175, which at the time was a whole lot of money. And I saw a few other things, but that was one of the things that really stood out. And then I saw a bulletin board that had like notes on it that said, you know, love spells, curse your enemies, find objects. And people had just posted them up there on little notes. And it was such a profound moment for me because it was the inescapable, like truth here that this was taken seriously and very real to a lot of people. Like before then, I, I mean, I had, sort of experimented with magical things and, you know, um, spells and that kind of stuff. And I knew that in history, there was a lot of it, but this was the real confirmation that in present day, someone would spend that much money on a lion's heart for a spell, you know, Mm -hmm. or someone could hire someone else to like do magic for them. So in other words, there was something that was very serious and real about it. And I remember feeling very sweaty and just kind of like, my mind was blown, even though I couldn't even really go into the store with my sister and her friend. And mm. also the being prohibited was probably also, you know, an aspect of it. So I think that's the story I want to start with. Uh, and what age were you again? I think I must have been like 13 or so, maybe a little older, a little younger. Yeah. And what was your kind of, kind of, in uh, knowledge or awareness of anything of that nature at the time? Was that 
Yeah, there was a lot. Um, I had already stolen, I mean, this could have been one of the stories too, but obviously we're not going to do all of them. But I had stolen a book from my library, my school library called something, something like Curses, Hexes, and Spells. And it was all like black magic stuff. And I did every spell in it. I was like eight years old or nine years old or something like that. So I was already very drawn to it. And I mean, sort of like make a voodoo doll, turn yourself into a cat, cast a love spell, all that kind of stuff. And it was crazy. So I, I, already had some allure to it before then and i took it seriously but the sort of out picturing of it you know with real people in present time was yeah. not there yet and is there like so i don't want to psychoanalyze you well i do no go ahead yeah. Yeah, no, um, n- nobody wants that it's terrifying <laughs> what we'll find out <laughs> i think it's had to be a over 18 podcast um no i'm just wondering whether you know you always have had a sense of the power of a thought or an idea that language or thought can influence reality? Is that something that kind of this allowed an expression of that? Or was it kind of like, because it feels like a lot of that stuff is about how yeah, words and thoughts and intentions are connected to outside reality and other people and other things and the interconnectedness. So I'm just wondering whether... I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm, I'm hesitating, but, you know, whether there was some element of of that in you in a kind of primordial way and this give voice to it or gave a systematic way of kind of approaching that or, or what would, yeah, more actually I ask you, what was it when you were in there and you were looking at the stuff, what do you think shifted? Like, what was it? Yeah. Well, if I'm to look at it now, I mean, I I would say that there was an aspect of it that was about, like I said, the seriousness of it. Mm. Like, people took it seriously. And something that demonstrated that it was taken seriously was there was a money aspect. uh, There was a financial aspect of this heart. There was also just the object aspect, like a lion's heart. I mean, it was huge. It was very Mm. big, you know. Um, And uh, there was also... I think seeing the lines of communication. So in some ways I would say there was an economic like component to it, not just economic in terms of money or whatever, but in terms of this could be resourced to people mm. somehow. And I think that there were breaks and flows of exchange and uh, interaction that were all happening that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the spirit, the spell casting and magic stuff. Everybody talked about that. I mean, it's in your cartoons, it's on the Smurfs for fuck's sake, you know, but then seeing that there was a world that was not on the surface of communications, interactions and engagement. I think that was it. And it wasn't just cause it was secret. Although I'm sure being stopped from going into the shop gave a sense of this, you know, yeah, arousal you know to me but it was more that there was so much of it and in fact it's interesting because that was the same thing when i saw a gay porn for the first time i thought something similar which i was like whoa like there are people doing this like there are a bunch of scenes on this vhs tape that means that there's somewhere where people are doing this everywhere and they're not freaked out by it and they're not even ashamed to show it like so there's this networking of engagement that 
I don't see in my everyday life, mm-hmm. you know? So it was something like that. Yeah. And then and what, what stuck with you from that experience? Like, what was the lasting impression? Because you've obviously picked that out as your first kind of, not the first chronologically, but the first one you wanted to talk about on the podcast. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think for me, it just it um, it just rev- it it's one of those moments where the world feels revealed to you. Um, so this was not a spiritual revelation, strictly speaking. In fact, it was in some ways like a very earthly, you know, revelation. But it was the earthly revelation of other people accepting a certain kind of spiritual truth i think that was it yeah you know it was an invisible community in a way yeah yeah and did that that, did that mark you then because obviously this is a lasting interest in the occult like was that a word that you'd known before much or kind of like (laughs) obviously you would have known the word but did it resonate before this yeah that's that's a good question because i like the word occult Mm. and a lot of people who are into some of the things i'm into they don't Don't, like it especially since i'm you know pretty genuinely a christian but i would say occult christianity and some people would not even people who have the same belief system as me or overlapping would not like that word occult and i definitely i think as you know, cemented that word, you know, that it was a cult. It wasn't new age. It wasn't spirit. It wasn't this, it was a cult. And I think, you know, before I knew the meaning of that word, which is like hidden, but hidden in plain sight in a way, you know, um, like, uh, like Goethe would say, you know, of all the sort of laws of form and metamorphosis, nature's open secret. Like it was an open Mm-hmm. secret you know and i think that's startling to me still that something can be so plain and so hidden all at once and i think maybe you know that's a very psychoanalytic thing you know scab you can pick out if you want to yeah. that there's something that's in plain sight and yet completely hidden from you i yes. mean that's which yeah. is the unco- i mean the unconscious is defined as that as well it's yeah it's not for freud it's not hidden deep in you so it's not a subconscious you get that in Jung, the subconscious but as freud talks about the unconscious it's it's hidden on the surface in plain sight it's just, so you listen to the freudian slips you listen to the power right, praxis right. you listen to the the stumblings um it's all there on the surface um you don't have to go into some deep reservoir to find it and yet it's hidden yeah yeah like you can't you can't know um Right, like I think that that's part of the excitement about it is that my knowingness is not only based on my thinking. So even though you had said kind of at the start, like, oh, you know, like you've had this idea that thoughts and language can like sort of interact and change reality, like it was that there was something like, I think there's something so appealing to me about that, that it's not just about thinking i think it's why i find a lot of uh like a sympathy for psychoanalysis and and connection to it is that it's saying you don't always know just because mm. you know yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so how like here let, let me give you a very um non-technical dis- definition of occult christianity and then you correct it and kind of m- nuance it a little bit uh you know 
so I would think when I when I hear that term, I think of like that term referring to kind of a hidden kind of an insight into um, both an insight into kind of the spiritual undergirding or lattice work of reality. And um, if this doesn't sound uh, pejorative, but and, and, and also an ability to work with it, to to influence it. Um, so, and then, so basically, yeah, occult Christianity is almost like there is this world of, immater- it's immaterial world of spirit. And through a certain uh, set of practices, one can interact with that world and as I say a, a manipulate physical reality mm. is that well I think for the occult Christian or esoteric Christian or whatever yeah. you wouldn't really seek to manipulate reality yeah. anymore what you would seek is to see it as it is and again there's mm-hmm. an alliance there in some ways with psychoanalysis I think where it's like you don't necessarily try to change the thing the symptom all you can do is look as much as you can with different sort of uh ways of apprehending until there's a kind of it's not even revelation but there's a there's a shift in you which allows the symptom to be digested differently almost Mm -hmm. and so i would say it's the same with christianity in the sense in a way where we apprehend reality through certain development, um, spiritual development, which requires exercises, which are different for everybody, but there's some overlap. And through that work, suddenly the real starts becoming uh, incorporated differently. So then you live differently as a result of that. So yes, you are changing reality, Mm. but it's not through like the difference. Like that occult place, like I wouldn't do any of the stuff that was there. You know, I wouldn't do mm. magic or anything like that anymore. That's a different kind of working where you're actually trying to command the forces to get you to do stuff. But because Christianity isn't about command anymore, it's about how can I relate to this differently? And then through that relationship, it transforms. Yeah. Okay. I thought on that. Um, hmm. Trying to think uh, where to go with that. Um, oh yeah, I mean, we because like in some respects, I think of like the secret as a form of kind of like secular Christian occultism, like a not necessarily one you would endorse, but the secret is, you know, the idea that there is an underlying spiritual kind of set of laws, almost like physical laws. There's spiritual laws, and if you you know, flow with the, like, oh, so it is a kind of open secret because obviously the secret is sold, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions or whatever. And, uh, but it's kind of like this open secret, but it's like, um, there is this underlying immaterial world that if you, if you have the right intentionality and manifest, you can kind of like, you know, get certain things will come to you, certain, say, material or uh, symbolic uh, things that you would like. Uh, do you think of that as a form of occultism, the secret? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, I think so. I would say that, like, it's kind of a low-hanging fruit. Yeah. You know, in the same way that, you know, we could talk about uh, 
getting a great job and, you know, moving up the corporate ladder as a kind of low hanging fruit of success, you know, in a way like it's, yes, you can do that, but there are, and I do think that there's some truth to it, but it engages with a lot of other aspects of the kind of spiritual anatomy of the cosmos. So like, it's not just the only thing that's there Mm -hmm. and uh, you can fuck things up if you try to do that as well. And you can harm people in the same way that like, you know, you can try your hardest in this lifetime to make as much money as possible without the secret, like just, you know, getting some corporate job or whatever. But usually somewhere along the way, you're stepping on someone else because you're not, trying to see the bigger picture of the con not just the consequences, but the sort of spread of your actions. Um, and I think that that's, so on the one hand, yes, I'd say it's true. On the other hand, I would say it's more complicated than it's presented. And also, you know, by the people that yeah. presented and, you know, but, and also like you wouldn't really try to do that as a, a Christian in this, you know, in these terms. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess the, see the, the bit of occultism that I think, you know, that's, that's interesting of course, is that it is a philosophical question is, is how does immateriality, let's call immaterial reality uh, for the sake of, uh, for now, um, how does that interact with material reality? So how does the mind interact with matter? How does thought influence being? Um, and uh, mind and matter is a good way of thinking about it. Like we are mental, that's that's immaterial. And when we think two plus two equals four, that doesn't grow old, it doesn't get rust, it doesn't can't get stolen. It's a very strange thing. It's eternal in a way. It's an, You might even want to say a necessarily existing thing. Mm. Even if there's no one in the world, no one in the whole of the universe, we can maybe two plus two still equal four maybe. Um, but... Uh, so the occult, I think, is a way of, of attempting to both understand, but maybe more have practices that that see this link between mind and matter is very closely interconnected. Would that be right? Yeah. Well, I, I like all that. I think there's a lot to say on it. And I think I'm going to maybe, we're both sitting on couches right now. I think mm. even though you're the analyst in this sense, I'm going to use scansion Right. I'm oh, gonna, you're going to stop me? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yes. And move to the next, because I yeah. think it's actually a really great place to stop and then to sort of hopefully, you know, like have some recursive, you know, touching on it again as we go. Because I think those kinds of questions also come up for you and your worldview mm. quite a bit. So maybe we can go with one of your experiences now. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> I weirdly, because it was funny when you said just before we started, well, why don't we do this? Do three kind of of these fund, fundamental, maybe um, kind of spiritual uh, events that have happened in our lives. And I have three that come to mind. It's at the age of 17, 27, and I think around 37. I don't know exactly. I think so every 10 years from when I was 17 and then had these, and they're interconnected. And so the first one was when I was 17, and I'm going to talk about that. It's a very weird one because I'll, I'll avoid giving any interpretations of it from now. I'll just kind of express what happened then. 
um, this was my first encounter with with religion. Uh, I encountered religion in a very cultural way, in like high church a little bit, but my family weren't particularly religious. My dad was very quietly religious, but that was very personal to him. So didn't grow up in a, in a religious family at all. And then I was going to the Gremlins movie, the first one. This is how long ago it was. And when I was leaving the cinema with these friends, there was like a street outreach, Christian street outreach. And at the time, these people were, I didn't understand what they were doing. They did some kind of Jesus drama and then they got talking to us. And we all talked for a little bit, but most of my friends got bored and walked away. Uh, there was two of us left, me and my friend PK. And that night, I remember he became a Christian, like did a conversion and they did a demon uh, exorcism on him. So I was watching him like rolling around the floor and screaming in crazy ways. Well, seemed kind of, like, kind of crazy, but um, I remember the next week I was getting ready to go to this party and I just burst out crying. No reason, just, just completely burst out crying. And I remembered what happened that week and I ran to the church and it was about 25 minutes probably to walk, maybe 15 minute run. I ran to the church got there and there was a side door open and I went down and there was a little prayer meeting and my friend who had been converted the week before he was there in the, in the group and uh, and and funnily enough and I think it's a lot of coincidence but they were praying for me at one point and I come in all teary you know um, <laughs> and have this just like very weirdly not know just a breakdown and literally a kind of a Everything in my world just collapsed. Um, I, I think of it as a as a radical um, subtraction, where every, like my the work that I was doing at the time meant nothing to me. I felt disconnected from my family in this experience. Um, I felt like disconnected from everything I owned, and that was my entry into religion which I stayed in for a few years and then I moved on from there. But that was that was this found foundational experience that where I would say that was where I gave up everything for God. And when I say give up everything, because the next thing, at 27, I give up everything, including God. But uh, this was like, I gave up, almost felt like what I discovered in that experience completely reset me. Wow. Okay. Okay. So first of all, I I never... Maybe you've said this before, but I've never made this connection. I just want to make a comment, and then I want to ask you a few questions. Mm. So in Gremlins, there's the complete transformation from oh, the yeah. Magua into the Gremlin, right? So I, I love that. And then, you know, by water, they multiply and feeding them after midnight, all this, you know. But, I, but I, also in that movie, there's a moment where Phoebe Cates is talking about her father dressing up as Santa Claus and coming down the chimney and getting stuck. And her father dies, and that's how she finds out there's no Santa Claus. And it's also how she loses her father at the same time. Wow. So I'm just thinking about, (laughs) did you see them after the movie, or did you see them on the way to the movie? I, I saw them after the movie. That's okay. fascinating. I never made those. Those are very interesting connections. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so no. I was just thinking about that, like in her life, the death of the father and the death of the belief in Santa Claus at the same time. And then also the radical transformations in that movie. But um, 
and the you know sort of demon like characters in that movie. But okay, I'll let you think about Gremlins uh, uh, yeah. later. But I want to know why you thought you were crying. That's interesting. Like, what what do you think brought that forth in you? First of all, yeah, because you know, like you know, it like that's not something I do very often. <laughs> so it was even when I was seventeen. So it was um. So uh, you know, th- this uh, this actually became a very foundational element of some of the theoretical uh, approaches that I take to the idea of conversion because. So if you take someone like obviously Alain Badiou or someone like that, uh, conversion is not where something is added to your life. So you've had 10 experiences in your life and now you've got 13 or sorry, 11. Or you have a certain set of beliefs and now in, in, in addition to all the beliefs you have, you have now a new set of beliefs. Um, in, a, in a way for Badiou, he says that conversion that is most radical is a, is a subtraction. It's... It's a, a moment in which you feel like everything is dust. Everything that, I mean, you even hear this in religious churches where you might have someone stand up and give a testimony and they'll say, oh, I used to be into money and fame and success. And, and then I realized before the eyes of God, these are just nothing. They're, they're nothings. Um, and that's, a, that's a quite a common experience. And I think actually there's something very true in that. It happens in our lives occasionally in different ways and at different times where we all of a sudden everything we're doing just seems like dust and dirt and nothing just pure nothingness and I don't know if that's what was that's definitely what happened over the course of the few days this few days I just kind of told one bit of it um it maybe I was mourning something maybe I just suddenly everything just felt unreal or unimportant and and the crying was maybe relief there was something was getting it was cathartic it was a cathartic crying it was like it was weeping it wasn't just crying it was a weeping with with no seeming object um and then when i went to the church i i felt this allowed me an opportunity to somehow kind of get rid of everything in my past and start fresh. So even though I started going to that church for a while, that wasn't the important thing that happened to me. It wasn't that, as I say, I got a new set of beliefs. I got a new set of things to think. It was more whatever happened that day, I felt, and I've used the word born again. And to be born, you don't experience birth. Birth is what allows you to experience, you know. So, so in one way, I the way I was experiencing the world was radically different. I just felt like it's like, yeah, I didn't not that something new had happened, but the, the world had infinite possibilities. So it was a very existential experience. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I mean, having known you for a really long time now, like one thing I know about you is that you don't remember or you at least say you don't remember a lot about your childhood oh yeah so when you say it's a disconnect i'm wondering what you were connected to what you felt you were connected to before yeah that's a that's a very good question and i think i have more insight into what that might have been obviously at the time i didn't know at all um you know i'll a lot of, from a psychoanalytic perspective, uh, from a Lacanian perspective and Freudian, you, one might say that the first big 
I don't know, challenge of being human is to differentiate from the mother other, right? To become a subject. Um, and this is called castration in psychoanalysis. But in, in, in anthropology, it's the incest taboo. It's the idea that, which you find everywhere, but the idea that you have to separate from the mother's breast. You have to, in some way, renounce a type of primordial relationship in order to become a subject. Um, this is why I believe in life after death. Um, like I think, in fact, I, I think life after death is is absolutely true, but that we are the life after death. We are the evidence of it, that there is a death that we all have to pass through in order to, to, be, to be alive. There's a, there's a fundamental point of flesh that we pay to become a subject. That's from the Lycanian perspective. And I say castration is the name for it, that we're, we've lost, we have died in a sense to become subjects. Now, as teenagers, we often have to do that as again, almost repeat and sometimes separate from our parents, you know, become arrogant and annoying and do and rebel or whatever. Again, you're in some way separating. I think my conversion was partly from a psychoanalytic perspective, I needed to enact a type of separation that hadn't happened when I was younger. Mm. That there was, that I think, I think a lot of my subjectivity is related to there wasn't a big enough break when I was, when I was very young. And so my radical conversion, because it wasn't just that I went to the church and I, I threw myself into it. Like I, that's why I say I gave up everything for it. Like I threw out all my stuff. Mm. I stopped going to tech where I was doing a course in computer studies. I, I just literally stopped everything. Um, but I do wonder whether, and I told my parents, I'm no longer your son. Um, I did it in a nice way. They were a bit shocked, but I was like, how do you do that in a nice way? But I sat down and I went, <laughs> I just feel completely separate, disconnected. They were very gracious, but yeah. there was something in that act, which I think was an act of separation. Mm. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting too, because that's happening, you know, so Peter, if you can't tell from listening to him, grew up, you know, in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Like, so it's also happening at a time of great conflict and reiterated separation between people that is not really based on religious beliefs, but is, well, it is in part, but is still like at least publicly facing, always talked about as having to do with how you relate to God. Mm, yeah. So do you think that that seeing that around you might have seeped in in a way as like, well, there's a radical break between believing in God this way and believing in God that way. And there's a line and a side has to be taken. And so therefore, here are these people who are sort of warriors for God, not warriors, maybe that's mm. not the word, but they're, but they're servants of God who are casting spirits out and so on and so forth versus the kind of sort of religious life that I'm having, maybe not with my family. They're not really into it, but they could be, it's here, but, but this is actually the serious way to pursue. Do you think that any of that came in? So, you know, it's, the weird thing about it was because I was very naturally, I've always been, just as you say, 
you're very naturally a theist, or you might not say it in those words, but you very naturally believe, like you you're saying earlier, that there was like one time where for about three minutes <laughs> yeah, you thought yeah. maybe you know there there was no God or whatever, right? Yeah. But so your your natural kind of like being in the world, I guess whether intellectually or not, it's just your way of being in the world is is quite naturally kind of like the idea that there is this source and power. I'm kind of I've always been the very natural atheist. I've just been very naturally not believed. And when I had my conversion, God wasn't really even in that in any big way. Like it really just was, without me being able to express it at the time, I just felt this, everything, the the tracks of my life, the tracks that I were on, I was derailed. I just felt derailed. And then I did just adopt the beliefs of this new group because they it happened when I was with them. But it was this subtraction. It was about fundamental subtraction. That's how it felt. I subtracted from everything. It's such, it's such a like. It's such a picture of what happens to people in so many different ways. Where, like that moment of crying, I can hear actually just from hearing you say it i can hear how like profound that moment is and as as you say subtraction in a way like the tears are almost Mm -hmm. like the washing of the feet you know it's the washing it's like a a, a, that action because people often cry as you do to let things go yeah so i love what you're saying i like what you're saying there is often an evacuation through tears yes and then Whatever's closest then jumps in, mm-hmm. and so in this almost—I I mean, I'm not—I'm not saying anything bad about these people, yeah. But just almost, you can imagine that they're the demon that jumps into the body as soon as there's space, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, even though yeah. they're the ones sort of, you yes. know, they're, it's, you know, it's kind of a takes one to know one uh, exorcism. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. we know how to get you out of there because we know how to get in, yeah. you know, but it happens for a lot of people in that way that where there's a break from the inherited sense of meaning, but then rather than generating uh, one's own sense of meaning, something gets pulled into the vacuum. Yes. Yes. And I think that's something that I, I try so hard to, uh, one for myself to work with and also to, to offer to others, like let this come from you, whatever it is, let it come from you. Something, you know, I dropped Rudolf Steiner quotes. I'm surprised I waited till now, but this yeah. Rudolf Steiner thing said, you know, I don't want you to please. I don't want you to believe me. I want you to understand me, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. a very different plea. Yes. And I think that so long as people are offering that question, Yes, you can still just absorb everything they say. And there are plenty of people who are into Rudolf Steiner, just like, you know, it's like a ticker tape coming out of their mouths. And I, I went through that phase as well. But whatever's close to you, it just starts to pour into and funnel yes. into the space that you've made. So the yeah. subtraction isn't allowed anything. And space to breathe. Yeah. I mean, that's that. And that's so key to, to what I developed in my own work after this was. Can can you in, create an experience, an event, a space that invites that experience in people's lives, while not then filling 
the vacuum. Not like, yeah, so, and it's always a temptation where the person wants you to give the answer. Like, you know, you kind of almost, if, if things fall apart, we naturally maybe very quickly want something to, to fill the vacuum. But what does it feel like to create the space where that happens? And we, and we, as you say, we allow it to be and the person finds a direction themselves. So that became a lot of my work because I realized that it wasn't what came after. It was, you say, it wasn't the beliefs. It wasn't all of that that was important. It was actually the event itself that was very existentially significant to me. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's so interesting because like... <laughs> And maybe I'll say this and then like, maybe we can oh, yeah, jump into your move, second one. Move, yeah. move from there, but or, or we can keep going. Um, but I, it makes me understand in some ways why you're, I, I don't like this word, but you just, you hear what I'm saying when I say it, like protective of the lack, mm. the, the psychoanalytic concept of the lack, which I have some issue with mm. that concept. But it's like, if I keep, if I, I if I kind of hold as worthwhile a void within myself, then I know I'm not being filled all the time by whatever's around me. Because mm. if that's actually unfillable, then there's still freedom available to me in a sense. Whereas if that gets filled up, I, there's no chance for me because yeah. I think that I'm certain I know everything I know about myself. I know about the world or whatever. And I, you know, I mean, the back and forth here is that not only would I say that that is filled, but actually we're filling it, that that it surrounds us and we stand in it. And what surrounds us and we stand in is Christ. But that's mm. different than holding it in some ways within or having it be a, a something within. Our, it's not that it can't also take that place too. It can, and it can feel like a nothingness or a void there, but it, it just makes me understand a little bit more what you're saying. Why, if you'll let me say sacred, like that, that lack has to be held as so sacred because the minute it's invaded is the moment when you lose the possibility of living really. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, so the way I would describe it, and this will, this is good to tease out the similarities and differences with us as well. But so for me, um, what is eternal is, you know, so I'll, I'll throw this out and we can talk about it, but what is eternal is this space, is the nothing. I would go like, it's almost so everything that could, like everything I've, I took on afterwards, that's historical, that's got, you know, what your beliefs, if they'd been Mormons, I would have probably become a Mormon, Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhists, you know, it's like, and there's historical religions. But for me, what what is universal and what we all share in common is a certain fundamental what freud called dasting a dimension of otherness or that is within us and within the other and so for me like yeah there's so important to somehow orient ourselves to that otherness to that dimension of fundamental mystery that marks everything and you know i can put that in very non-spiritual terms and say like that language itself never quite names what it names. As soon as language rises and we talk about things, we always say more and less than we mean. We There's a certain sense in which language 
it does communicate and it also miscommunicates. There's always an excess, so a transcendental dimension to language. And um, so there's a dimension of otherness and mystery that's even woven into our discourse, woven into our desire. And religion for me at its best can help orient us and help us tarry with that dimension um, within us. Now, and the difference, again, may be, you know, I... I describe that very much as a type of subtraction or nothingness. And you potentially would use terms of like fullness and excess. Um, and I think they are connected. I think both of us are comfortable with both of those different terms. Um, you know, I would maybe describe an excess that arises from the lack. So in other words, the more we can't describe something, you know, the more magical it becomes, like the the inability to describe something like love actually is what makes it so intense. So if I say words cannot describe how much I love you, the very failure to describe the love is kind of what gives it its searing power. So the excess and lack are connected. And I think for you in different ways, you can probably connect excess and lack in some way. <laughs> right, yeah. right, because I would say yes, that <laughs> love is the reason like, like language comes from love and therefore language can't ref it can't contain love to be able to give it back to itself in a, mm -hmm. in a sense in the same way that i would say i mean I, i've been thinking about the sphinx myth so much recently which has its own special connection to psychoanalysis i'm sure but it's the sphinx is the sphinx's question you know asks a question or poses the riddle and when someone can't answer the Sphinx consumes the person, but then the answer to the big riddle of the Sphinx is, is man, right? Or the human being, you know, what walks on four legs in the morning, three le or two legs in the afternoon and three legs in the evening. So from crawling to standing, to walking with a cane, but that's such a profound back and forth there because I see like the question of the all consuming question the all-consuming riddle, which seems to have no answer, finds its answer in the entire lifespan of a human being. Mm -hmm. So I am the answer. So if the lack or the nothingness is, to me, a question that my existence answers, it's not, it's not that I can answer it with any one particular aspect, but actually I am the complementary answer to the riddle always. Mm. Well, interestingly, Lacan, he, um, one of the areas where he kind of like differed from Freud is that for him, the mother was not, um, uh, you know, in the Oedipus myth was not the, the person that Oedipus, you know, marries. Uh, the mother is the Sphinx, who is the kind of the anxiety producing Riddler. Who And for Lacan, the reason for that is he says like fundamentally, the mother other is an enigma to the child. Um, there's there's a familiarity to the mother and they come and they go and the, the infant potentially through the Fort Da game of where the, because infants always play, first game anyone plays is presence and absence. They throw their foot off the whatever and then they get great pleasure when it's put back on and they get pleasure from throwing it off or peekaboo, right? So kids are always playing the presence absence game. But the second level presence-absence game for Lacan is not just the child coming to terms with the, the comings and going of the mother and the familiar mother who loves you and cares for you, 
but also the mother who is, there's a present absence. There's a desire that you can't quite name. What do they want from me? Why do they desire me? Or why do they desire something else? What is it that makes me desirable to them? So the mother is like the the ultimate riddle, the dasting. And for me, what I like about psychoanalytic theory is that that part of psychoanalysis is helping the subject become comfortable with living in front of a great riddle, the riddle of the other, and being open to the other. And the most formidably frightening people are the ones who are most familiar. It's the ones who you love can turn around and do something to you that can destroy your world. There's a dimension of the other that's uncanny for Freud. And and we often try to protect ourselves from that otherness, that uncanniness, that part of the other that could destroy our relationship in a second or, you know, do something mad. But we can't we can't ever protect ourselves from the riddle, the sphinx of the other. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that goes anywhere, but it just reminded me of, of the calm when you said that. <laughs> no, that's yeah. good. That's um, good. Yeah. Th- this, this for me actually is the, the Lacanian mystical experience. So there's the mystical experience I think you would be drawn to, which is the idea of being short circuited by potentially an, uh, an overwhelming experience. There is a possibility of articulating a religious experience, which is could, you could describe as an encounter with the not an overwhelming presence, but the absence of the other. You know. Anyway. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. I mean, I've always. I think Lacan was. I don't want to say easy, but it, it's been easy for me to deal with because of because of occultism so when you we talk about him in mystic terms or even occult terms i can understand him quite quite easily even though some of the things are pulled inside out you know, mm, yeah. know what I'm saying? Mm. yeah well here what is your second one let's we may not get to do three each actually um so yeah there's a few that i wanted to bring up but that i so i was kind of bouncing back and forth but now i think this one's good so I was in Vietnam and I was in, so I, I must have been, I don't know, 30, 38 or 39, something like that. So not too long ago. And I was sitting uh, in a, this hotel room as at this resort in the middle of uh, Nha Trang. And I looked at the wall and there was a gecko on the wall. And the gecko was looking at me, and I was looking at the gecko. It sort of, you know, tilted its head. And then everything flipped over, and I became a kind of, uh, of I would say, well, let me back up and say it this way. I saw myself through the gecko's eyes, but not only did I see myself through the gecko's eyes, I felt the chair i felt myself as the chair holding me i felt myself as the light that was coming at me and kind of bouncing off of my location um i felt the ceiling sensing the pressure of my presence below it in other words i felt everything else's uh apprehension of me and that i was uh, kind of whole <laughs> that 
that everything was being poured in all the intensiveness of everything else was being poured into to compose. So it was like suddenly rather than everything else being kind of around me and I was, you know, experiencing it with my senses, I realized that everything was looking in and composing me as it looked. It's a very difficult thing to describe, but it was just sort of throwing myself out and then looking back in from every direction possible. Hmm. So that reminds me of, but this is, you're going to say it's not quite the same, I think. Well, let's go with this. Can I just say one more thing? Oh yeah, please. And it it lasted for a little while. Like it wasn't just a flip Mm. on, flip off. It lasted for mm, like, let's say 25, 30, but, and then I came out of it, you know, slowly. Yeah. 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 Um, And you know, and people that's that, I suppose by the by is an experience that a lot of people have, whenever they do psychedelics, something like that. So without psychedelics, you had a kind of, I think that's a similar experience that someone like Timothy Leary talks about. Mm. Um, uh, what was his book? The Doors Perception. Because um, I, I read, oh, yeah, I read that years ago. And I remember the introduction, but, you know, ex- expresses, I think, that, that experience um, very powerfully. I'm trying to connect it with the notion, the philosophical idea of the gaze. Um where the gaze, particularly for Lacan, is, well, for Sartre, I guess it was more simple. The gaze is you're looking at the world, and he uses the example, famous example, somebody sitting in the park and looking at everything and almost master of their own world, and then someone just turns and stares back at you. And that moment when you encounter the stare of the other staring at you is this intra- is this decentering moment. Um and for Lacan, I think for him, there is a sense in which it sounds very weird at first, but that everything is always gazing back at us. Um, you feel it most if you're late at night, you turn all the lights out and you feel something's watching you, right? Something like that. You can suddenly, there's there's ways in which we can evoke this. And for Lacan, the way I understand the gaze in Lacan in this way is that, but again, fix the idea that everything has a type of lack within it everything has a type of um, subjective dimension to it. And then what you maybe experienced there was that profound experience of the gaze that you weren't just looking at the world, but you experienced the world looking back at you. Uh, but you, but it sounds like you also felt a kind of oneness. Was it a oneness event? or No. Uh, I mean, there was a different kind of connectivity for mm. sure. I don't know that I call it a oneness yeah um but i would say i felt like i wish i could like create a little computer graphic of this or something where if you imagine like imagine a like just imagine a photograph of this room Mm -hmm. Or let's let's actually pick something a little larger. Imagine a photograph of St. Stephen's Green, okay, mm-hmm. like from above, right? And I'm, and then in the middle of that, there's like a kind of roughly human-sized bubble. And as that bubble moves, everything that it moves by sort of bends into it to 
keep composing the membrane or the edges of the bubble. So as it moves, it's sort of pulling in everything else. It's not, it's not pulling everything as it goes. So in other words, you're not going to have a blank sheet of paper by the time you get from one side of the park to the other, but just everything's kind of bending towards it as it moves to continuously compose the membrane. So it, it, the experience was of the constitutive forces that were constantly in action to generate me, to generate the concentration of factors that made up this moving address of my incarnation or my being. Mm. So um, it really put me in touch with how my body is like a, a movable, constantly dying, constantly being reborn sort of sacred site or a constantly constituted address that's shifting around at all points. Mm. I know that that's, these are difficult ways to, you know, maybe difficult ways to understand, you know, uh, or difficult articulations, I should say, but I, I don't exactly know how else to say it because if, if I would have gotten up and moved outside, I would have sensed everything as I moved looking at me. And then I would have sensed everything outside, you know, looking in and forming me. I wouldn't have just stayed with the stuff that was in the room. Does that make sense? Mm. So it was this really profound moment. Interesting. I talked to somebody later, this guy who I've had on the show twice now, this guy, Ari Torsen, who's this occultist acupuncturist veterinarian. <laughs> so much mm. like yourself. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> he, he said he had the same experience with, it was like a, a reptile as well, like a little lizard that, mm. that somehow like the reptile being is a way to like turn that on and off was he was sort of mulling over that. Oh, is it something to do with the reptile? Which I thought was interesting as well. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but I, I do think it was a different, it was a completely different form of consciousness. I think with the psychedelic stuff from the times I've done acid and mushrooms, when the big difference is, is that that felt like I had those instances felt like I had kind of intensified the experience of the things that were around me in. So like the grass was greener than it had ever been. The water tasted differently. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I would start seeing different forms and that kind of stuff. But this wasn't that this was actually occupying the sense of something looking in without occupying myself in the same way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I wonder again, you know, I put, I'm putting words onto this experience that that might be foreign, but I do think that, you know, again, in the psychoanalytic notion of the, the ego is a symptom, like the, especially with Lacan, the ego is a, a type of coagulation of a contradiction. Um, and there are certain moments, and I think like I did, I, you know, I haven't done drugs very much, but I did when I was in LA, experimented with a couple of things because my friends, you know. Yeah, I, that, I, I know which friend, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's always like, but it's, it's, it's like anthrop being an anthropologist, LA, it's like, it's, it's, the, it's the thing everyone does. It's like, uh, yeah. it's hilarious. So I kind of felt like, okay, I'm going to have to do this. Um, and, you know, do, I did 5MEU and 
the the it, it, the experience was the unnodding of the ego. That's how I would have described it. Is is it briefly? You the, the symptom of the ego unknots and creates a very weird kind of sense of weaving with everything. And I I wonder whether in a similar way you you experience something your ego was because uh, I, I think you probably have a more fluid kind of sense of ego than someone like myself or whatever. So you could probably, like how often have you floated outside of yourself? Was that, was, has that been a regular occurrence in your life? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, in different ways. Like this was a pretty singular, well, not singular. Like I, I can carry that consciousness. It's like once something like this happens to me, I can kind of turn it on and off in a yeah. way. But um but I would say the difference between what you're saying, like with the with drugs, they're working through your organs in a way that this was not working through my organs. In other words, yeah. I presented a substance that, you know, in in the case of drugs, that is interacting with everything in my organs, my organ processes, the the kinds of things that are happening in my mind and connection with my body and my organs and all of that. And so the images and the experience would be different. Whereas this was, of course I still have a body and there are organs there. Maybe it's a body without organs, but mm-hmm. I still have my body and organs there, but I'm not, I'm not introducing a poison and for maybe lack of a better term, but I'm not introducing a poison or a challenge to them to get me through into that. Uh, the LA people would hear you saying poison. They'd be oh, like yeah. medicine, medicine. I know. I totally. <laughs> I talked. I've talked out pretty uh, explicitly against psychedelics on the show before, so they know where I stand. And I, I think yeah, I, I've I, been I, very. And I've a few times I've talked about it. I'm quite. Uh, people know I'm quite dismissive. We yeah. may in different ways, but I, interestingly, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I wonder. But I. That's um, funny. Yeah. I find I find it interesting recreationally, but I didn't see find any value in them therapeutically or spiritually i don't see very much i think there's tiny amounts of value if for example you're dealing with maybe if you're dealing with post-traumatic stress or something like that something that but even then i think working through the issue through through the unconscious and the talk talking is probably better but i could see maybe it does help a little bit but i i i mostly i'm mostly in the uh the camp of of uh, working through. Yeah, I think we both have that. Yeah. I mean, I think our ways of working through and why it is not going to, you know, uh, work really for you to just do the yeah. entheogen are probably a bit different, but I think we both agree that, yeah, that like it's better to engage with thinking and feeling and then action than it is to... Um, introduce something that's going to temporarily carry the process for yeah. you. Yeah. Also, I mean, as an aside, but it, it, like um, I'm very critical of kind of mental health stuff, obviously. And, and the main reason is because most of what goes under the term mental health is how to integrate yourself more with your mm. environment, right? So people feel anxiety, panic attacks, fatigue, burnout, typical modern symptoms. And through either drugs or certain kind of like low-level mental health stuff, they find ways to be able to cope with their jobs and their relationships and their life. And, beca- and uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Um, whereas for me, you know, the, the real 
in breakthrough of psychoanalysis is to make you enjoy the fact that you are mm-hmm. mal adapted to the world, right? Not right. to be better adapted to yeah. the world in mental health, but to but to enjoy that you are in, but not of the world, right? To enjoy that experience. Yeah. And again, so for me, a lot of the people I know who who do, do use psychedelics, not everybody, and I say I've done it a bit. I know it's helped. But Richard Boothby. Um, he did some experiments with mushrooms, very much helped him. He's a philosopher I deeply respect. But sometimes it's it's people who, f- who feel ill at ease in, in their alienated world and the drugs allow them to have less friction with their reality. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think you and I both, it's not for me to make a proclamation about whether or not yes. people should do drugs, but rather yeah. to say, let's have a conversation that includes these aspects of it before we yes. sort of rush in and, you know, use them. And I, I include that for spiritual work as well, not just, you know, the psychological stuff. Um, because there are some people who, ge- I mean, everybody's different. There are some people who genuinely, I do think, handle that well and need mm-hmm. that. But, um, it's interesting that you brought about the the brought up the mal adjusted versus you know it's something that's there's a clash between um, disability rights activists and Camp Hill communities. Camp Hill communities are the learning yeah. uh, uh, difference um, and intellectual um, divergence uh, places were, that were set up by Karl Koenig, who was a student of Rudolf Steiner's, um, with Steiner's guidance and help. For people with disabilities, what we call different disabilities, um, to live at, when Steiner said, and this is before, you know, World War Two, <laughs> he said, you know, if you call these people idiots, you are have, making a mark on your soul because they are full people as much as anybody else. They're complete. And to think that they're missing something is is wrong. And this is what Karl Koenig worked on and developed Camp Hill the same year that Hitler then proclaimed that all people should be, all people with disabilities should be killed. But the conflict is that they're living there and that's the community in which they live in versus the idea of inclusion of people with disabilities in society where everything should be uh, accessible. That that's that accessibility is the standard by which we help people who are differently abled and i'm much more like well what i i mean i'm i don't have anything to say to people with disabilities about but i i do think it's like well can we ask questions about the places and things that we want access to and that's exactly what you're saying too which is like well the maladjustment but what do you really want to be adjusted to this stuff which is just causing mass mental instability and then call it health because you've been able to have access to it. Yes. And I think that that's, you know, that's a really big and important question, but let's go to your next. Oh yes. Next one. Okay. (laughs) Um, Next one was a dream that I had that was very, that really stuck with me. Um, And I was a literal dream or a daydream or a dream, but it was, I was in my room I was um, I was imagining walking close to where I lived and then I was immersed in just like everything faded away and I heard this voice of God saying I do not exist and it was like this 
kind of very in weird spiritual experience. It felt it was it was a bodily experience as well, but it was interesting because it wasn't it's it wasn't theism in the sense of God was saying I don't exist, but then it wasn't atheism because it was God saying that God doesn't exist. Um, and it was a kind of spiritual experience of radical absence. Basically, this was the experience of the non the death of God, and that that kind of dream stroke experience um, kind of marked a lot of kind of was you know it definitely reflected the material I was reading and thinking about at the time, but it also kind of like kind of helped put me on the road to. Uh, kind of radical form of death of God theology. Yeah, so I like how you linked that earlier to radical subtraction, because I was Mm. thinking about Meister Eckhart, you know, when you brought that up, and Meister Eckhart was very much a radical subtractor. Yes. Uh, And, you know, my favorite phrase of his, which I is included in my novel somewhere, actually, is... um, only the hand that erases can write the true thing. Hmm. And so I like this. I, you've told me this instance, you know, this moment before, and it's profound because for a lot of reasons, but one of it is because like, I've come to show you the truth, you know, abandon, abandon me now, Hmm. you know? (laughs) Um, I wonder why you experienced that, I ask in earnest, like, why did you experience that as God saying, I don't exist rather than uh, God saying that these conceptions of me don't, aren't yeah. correct? Why Why was it a more sort of overall yes. feeling for you? Yeah, that's the thing, because there's one thing which is kind of like, let's call it just stand, standard kind of like... Um, Oh, there's nothing very standard about it, but mysticism, which is all of your concepts are kind of fragmentary shards that do not, you know, reflect the reality of the numinous, right? Even a Kantian kind of idea, there's the phenomenal world we can understand and there's the numinal realm and none of our experiences, none of our words can ever match up to that reality. This was something different to that. This was something saying that not simply that ultimate reality was unknown to myself, but somehow ultimate reality had unknowing or lack or death woven into itself. And that that was very important to me in the kind of development of my work through the more traditional mysticism. My first book was, you know, to a certain extent, quite um, like, like that Kantian idea. It was almost like to be human is to experience certain transcendental a certain dimension of reality that cannot be reducible to our intellectual or experiential life so i've always been interested in that Uh, i'm training continental philosophy and continental philosophy in many ways is a discipline that's interested in what cannot be spoken the other otherness uh, but I moved really, I think that dream was the moment that I began to move from a Kantian conception of absolute reality, the real, to a more Hegelian notion, which is that that there is an unknown dimension within 
ultimate reality. You know, it, it's it's not simply that I don't know, like in a, in a religious sense, it's God doesn't know. There's a self-division within God. And that's kind of, I think, the radical idea in death of God theology. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's not, I mean, you can, a Buddhist or anybody, I think Buddhists are correct here. I can say to you, I do not exist. Um, and there is a, a strange contradiction there because in a sense I can be saying, well, there's the I that speaks this, Peter Rollins, who was born in Northern Ireland, all these things, but, but is there an I, you know, whenever I peel back and try to uh, find the authentic me, I realize that all of my desires and the things that seem to be most me are reflected in the people I love. Like almost my desires have been given to me by others. So I can say I do not exist in a way that is is kind of true. So I think that's what that that kind of that dream got me to, I think, a more radical place in traditional mysticism. And it's reflected in Meister Eckhart. And I, this is where I would say it's the great, the second great subtraction of my life. The first one was giving up everything for God. And then the second was giving up everything, including God. So it was, this was like a, this was, this first experience turned up to 11, you know. And when you say it was a bodily experience, what do, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I remember because I it was I was part of what's called the charismatic church and often and this is a time there was a thing called the Toronto blessing but often people would say pray for you and you would feel uh, like like what you would feel on drugs but a very tingly bodily sensation now I just felt that on my own but when I was feeling when I was getting this sense um, I felt very uh, kind of otherworldly there was something physical going on within me it's hard to describe yeah mm. so <laughs> so in some ways i, I wonder if this will be of any interest to anybody but us oh, i feel very right. self-indulgent <laughs> no, you know? I, no it, it trust me yeah after some of the episodes i've done it will be yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um at least the things i say um will be so i am <laughs> but i'm wondering like the idea of that seems to have strengthened your relationship to god in a sense yeah so there there was a russian sect of orthodox sect very small and they would instead of having icons that they would pray with or pray to they would cut a hole in the wall and they would pray to the whole. And uh, I thought it was really interesting. Like, my understanding. We call those glory holes, yeah. What's that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you kneel, you pray. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> but I always was like very drawn. Because when Pascal said, and I've always liked Pascal, but when he's talked about the God shaped hole, there was a sense in which I kind of began to understand that in a way that. I'm grateful for Pascal, but that was kind of different from Pascal, which is not that there is a gap which God fills, but perhaps God is the name for a gap. So God is not the the the, the patch that we put on the wound of our of meaning. God is the wound upon which the patch is language. So it, I think partly this in my when I was around my mid mid late twenties was this move from the idea of God as an object to to this God as a signifier of that 
which we cannot describe. God is the signifier of an absolute otherness. And that's beyond, for me, theism or atheism, because there is, and this is why I'm interested in Lacan, who, you know, has no interest. I don't think in any way you could call him a theist. Some people have tried to argue that there's elements there, but, you know, I think he, in many respects he was, you know, didn't have any theistic dimension and yet um, had this profound sense of an irreducible dimension of otherness or mystery or dasting that that we need to orient ourselves to. Um, now, Freud, interestingly, Freud defined religion pretty much as the, as the ways in which we try to cover over the anxiety of dusting, the anxiety of mystery. So religion can give us almost like obsessional rituals that make us feel in control of the world. Or it can make us, we, we think of God as a daddy that will look after us and love us and care for us. So Freud primarily saw religion as a way of avoiding, tarrying with this dimension of mystery. But... And I think he's right. I think a lot of religion does that. A lot of religion is the, the, the patch that we put on the wound of our unknowing. But I do think that there is a way of having practices that keep the wound open. <laughs> um, and, that's, and that's what's interesting to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if Downing Thomas, right, is like, yes, I'm investigating the truth and your realness, but in doing so, I'm also reopening the wound and causing pain. So the truth is coming to me through uh, this act of causing pain and suffering and sacrifice that you're also allowing me to do, which I find also yeah. really to be something. But I, I, th I, you know, I'm hearing what you say. It's, so, it's an interesting progression from one story to the next. And I think I see a pattern in the three that I am bringing. But now too but i think to say i wept and then i knew that i was going to dedicate my life to god and like here you are i mean all those years later we're sitting on two couches which is funny mm. talking about god i mean all from this moment of the break where you cry and you know you have this profound experience and now still like these conversations about God. And I know that you move into other, you know, areas and interests in your work, but it's like, you know, it's Miles Hollingsworth, uh, bi uh, biography of Wittgenstein where he says, you know, we can't really understand Wittgenstein at all, except that everything he wrote was his, about his relationship to God. And a lot of people wouldn't take Wittgenstein that way. They would think he's completely, outside of that realm, but he sees these moments of break and frustration and that keep all his questions in some ways mm. relating to this concern. And in a lot of ways I see that, you know, in you, even if, if we're just talking about the other and the various others, you know, the, the psychoanalytical or, uh, heavenly hierarchies, mm. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, some are the thrones and some are the <laughs> powers and, you know, um, the exousiae or whatever. But I think we, we still find ourselves in the conversation of that, of these radical moments that have occurred to us in, in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, like we, I want to say that we need a signifier of lack. Like I, so I, 
And, and this is where, again, we have an interesting conversation, but like one of my concerns about modern society, and um, I've been reading um, uh, B. Young Chul Han a little bit, um, and I find him Who very interesting. B. Young Chul Han, he wrote Burnout Society. Okay. And um, he wrote The Agony of Eros, but he's quite, he'd become quite popular writer. Um, and his argument, he has a very interesting argument. His basic, in a nutshell, his argument is, that we live in an increasingly achievement society. So we've lived in, in the past in disciplinary society where, you know, you have to do the right thing. You're disciplined in school and you do your job. You may hate it, right, but you have to do it. But achievement society is where you're more and more immersed in the language of you can do it, optimize your life, life hack you know, seize a day, become an entrepreneur of the self, all of this kind of stuff. You know, it's the age of the influencer. And uh, B. Young Chul Han he really makes a very, I think, very powerful argument that the modern symptoms we see, which are things like burnout, fatigue, um, ADHD, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of like very modern symptoms we see are connected to this realm of pure positivity. Pure positivity meaning, you know, you have to optimize, seize the day, enjoy, uh, like maximize what you're doing, maximize your effect in the world and da, 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 and enjoy your life, enjoy your work. You don't just have to work for Facebook, you have to like to work for Facebook, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and this creates very particular symptoms like fatigue, burnout. And his argument, which is a very ancient argument, is that we need space for otherness, for negativity. The space of laziness, we need space to be lazy. The virtue of not doing anything productive. Um, the virtue of, of not trying to render everything into a commodity that can be bought or sold or exchanged. And that for me is like, you know, and for me, God can be a signifier of the lack. Um, and I think for someone like Simone Weil, that's what God was. God was not naming a substantive being. God was the name for a type of dissatisfaction that we need in our lives. And whenever we don't have a signifier for lack, um, we can get into this world of pure positivity, which is exhausting. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, like, when I think about burnout, um, I think about, you know, burnout starts so long before you actually have that burnout moment. And I, I've heard someone say, I can't remember who, but that burnout began the moment you stepped outside of your integrity. Uh, I like the idea of integrity here because it's not about positivity necessarily. It's not about staying positive and keeping going and like all, all that. It's actually when I leave uh, kind of truth for who I am, then this almost a pathology or whatever begins to sort of fester and then it shows up and fluoresces as this like collapse symptom of burnout, like a little ways down the line, but it was building and growing mm. all along. And it started from the moment I decided to not be who I really am. Not that who I really am is always knowable to me, but that actually I've stepped outside of the realm of that. And now I'm this, and that can happen from too much positivity. It can mm. happen from too much negativity. It can happen from all sorts of things, but it comes from a certain kind of, uh, uh, loaded word for this conversation, but a kind of drive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, I find this guy's argument because, like, you think of if someone's has a good kind of blue collar job, they were well, not a good one necessarily, but like a traditionally they go to say they yeah. build, they go to the shipbuilders and they build, and they the symptom is physical. They like, they're probably damaging their body. They end up dying young. They in, inhale chemicals. There's like there's lots of physical symptoms that come from that job. It's interesting. What are the symptoms that come from a society where you can be all that you can be, optimizing, self-optimizing, seizing the day, kind of like, you know, uh, life hacking, all of this stuff. And I go like, oh, the symptoms are real, but not they're not necessarily those physical symptoms. Now they're the symptom of, of burnout and fatigue. Like yeah. the people I know who suffer most from fatigue as a symptom, as a pathological symptom, are actually... A lot of the people I know who are kind of in the same kind of work as we are, but they are constantly like the way Beyond Child says it is that instead of having kind of that master slave dialectic where your boss is telling you what to do and you have to obey, um, you're your own a slave driver, you're your own oppressor. You're the oppressed and the oppressor. <laughs> you're always demanding you have to do more, write more, do more podcasts, do more this, do more that, da da da. And then the result is this. And you, you can't blame anybody because you're doing it to yourself. It's not like you've got, you, in the past you could blame your boss for being an asshole, but this is, you, you're supposed to be enjoying your life and doing your own thing and being your own boss. And subjectively you don't feel the alienation. So the alienation comes out in fatigue or burnout or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it seems, it's interesting because that, that kind of stuff and some aspects of psychoanalysis seems to have arms with Marxism in a way, yeah. because like you actually can't not have a boss yeah because you always have an an other a big other big like other, whatever yeah. like you always have a boss and mm. it and the the so the problem is like <laughs> and sometimes it's better to have a boss who the, oh, yeah. like, well, like, is that the problem though is you have a boss that's kind of hidden and is yourself like it's almost right. better to have a boss who's an asshole like you have a job you don't like and at least you can you, Mark Herbert Mercuse talks about Mercuse's kind of when in one dimensional man he basically is saying that in the old days, you did a job and you hated it. So at least there was a possibility that you could become a revolutionary subject because, <laughs> you know, because you hated yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. These days, you go, you go, you have to wear the your logo of your company and go for pizza nights and go for parties and you call your boss by their first name and it's all family. And he says, the problem is you become one dimensional and you don't have two dimensions that fight. So it's more difficult to become a revolutionary subject because you're still alienated, but you don't even know you're alienated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess uh, the only thing I would maybe say about this and then we'll move on, but I think like maybe the burnout, the break and the collapse are actually like the way to encounter, right? That mm. negative that you are meant to encounter. So it's not, a, that's not a bad thing either yes. necessarily oh yeah that's the moment of you potential know? yeah like, that's the moment when the person might for yeah go to psychoanalysis and begin to change their life you're right that right. actually yeah the fatigue is is the problem but simultaneously potentially the, the will lead to the solution right yeah there's a there's a um i thought this guy who was on my show had said it but let me like it's something like uh if your dream is big enough, you don't need a crisis. Right. And I think like, of course 
you might still have suffering, difficulty, obstacle, or whatever. But the idea is if your sense of who you are, what you're capable of, what can happen is big enough, it will include and incorporate aspects of obstacle and difficulty within it. So when you encounter them, you understand that they're connected to an expansive rather than a completely contracted sense of being. So it's not, it's not that those things are bad. It's just that you get so contracted into them and they offer a sense of no escape and that they'll be never ending. And in fact, a lot of times with depression that it's always been going on, it always will be going on. But if you can have moments of burnout or collapse or even illness in some cases where you understand it in a way that lends to a kind of uh, expansiveness, then it doesn't, then the negativity becomes sort of incorporated in in a, in a, in a better way. So that's why I would say we don't necessarily have to view those moments as like bad because like also <laughs> it like, so that or the boss, I mean, either way you still have to contend with, the contraction of fuck I'm stuck I'm trapped I yeah. don't have any way out of this like and so that's the thing you have to deal with it's true I mean the the big danger then in many ways is that fatigue so if I say for example I'm suffering from fatigue the problem is I can see the fatigue as separate from me as something that oh I need to have a holiday I need to do this or that and the fatigue is, is giving me the option, the opportunity. It's uh -huh. speaking a truth that is more. There's a problem in the way you're being. There's a problem in your work life and your family life, or whatever. There's these, and the, the the it's like the fatigue is the um, the symptom. The problem is when we treat it as like a cancer that we can cut out of our body, mm. which I think is what we're, that's what mental health does for me. A lot of mental health stuff that you see, the popular stuff is about if someone's suffering from fatigue, there might be meditation you can do or kinds of something to get kind of like mm. get rid of it. Whereas, um, and what you're talking about, which I love is no, no, it's, it's, it's got the opportunity to do something, but only if in a way we can see it as, almost the objective expression of a, of an alienation that we can't even speak. So there's, there's like an alienation going on within us. And because it can't even find expression, mm. it's expressed in the fatigue, but we have to then allow the fatigue to give us the insight into that dimension. That's why I would argue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, um, that's right. I mean, so the occult way of talking about it is that everything begins it, like all change in human existence at the time being, a lot of it begins in what we would call the astral realm, the realm of emotions, imagination, the realm of intensity of experience. And you can kind of seize or stop anything there if you're willing to sort of go in and work with it imaginatively, emotionally, in, in in intensity or maybe in psychoanalytic terms if you will go deeper into enjoyment to understand what what's happening there or even encounters jouissance this all happens in this kind of layer of reality when you don't do that it finds a way to make you 
listen or attend to it some other way. Sometimes it can happen in the ego. Sometimes it can happen in our daily rhythms. But a lot of times it'll happen through the body. It'll find a way to sort of burst through into physical symptom. And when it does that, you might need to take physical action. But if you don't actually go into the, the astral realm <laughs> to deal with it as well, then you're not really dealing with anything. Like you actually have to contend with the imaginal to be able to deal with the physical. Um, And that's not to tell people, I think that gets confused by new age movement, which is like, well, just work with the imagination and the thinking and whatever, and you'll be fine. There's a kind of a truth to that. But sometimes when people have a physical symptom, they have to do something physically to actually make room for them to be able to even contend with the imaginative, uh, you know, kind of that kind of yeah. aspect of the problem. And so uh, that's why I thought you were kind of, go- that's where I thought you were going to go with it. When you start talking about it was like, well, the real danger is when you get fatigued, sometimes you get so fatigued that you can't even recognize that you're fatigued. And that's when the real danger happens is when, it becomes so level in your life that you can't even see that something's weird. Like if have you or anybody who's listening, it's like you walk around with like a problem, a physical pain or something that's become so present all the time that you forget that it's even there and you go about your day. But every once in a while, it just kind of like pings up and you're like, Oh, that again. And you're like, Oh, that's just my life. That's just my body now. And a lot of times that's sign of something that really needs to be like looked into and taken care of, but you've just normalized it to the fact that like it can never be addressed. And that's where a lot of times the danger really is. It's not actually in the acute problem, but it's in the sort of dull hum mm. of the problem that you've normalized. Yeah. And I think this is connected to that because normalize is a good term is that for me, and this is, this is where, this is where like actually the critical theorists, like the, like the Frankfurt school, you know, they, they really took on Freud's idea that, you know, for example, you can be depressed and not know it. Your depression comes out and say, you maybe you're eating sweet food all the time and you watch to, you know, crappy TV or whatever it is, but you don't even know you're depressed. But kind of other people who are sensitive or can see it, they're going like, you know, you're depressed and you don't, you don't even know it, you know. You're like, yeah, and yeah. it's almost like the first step is to is to subjectivize the depression, and so like so the depression starts off not subjectively but objectively, almost in the symptom. Then you subjectivize it. You you kind of go, okay, there's something about my life that's not working, and I don't even I don't even have the symbolics structure to be able to articulate it so in other words i i articulate it through eating too much ice cream or or going out all the time to parties or getting drunk all the time whatever it is doesn't matter um but then once you subjectivize it and you're able to kind of acknowledge it then potentially you're able to do something with it or about it and so i think for a lot of us our symptoms are things that we normalize or we as I say, we we see them as objective problems. Like I eat too much ice cream, maybe I need to go on a diet, join Weight Watchers, whatever, right? N- right. And not yeah. go, oh, maybe that's the objective manifestation of a suffering that's that's within me. So, will we move on to our third experience? Yeah. Now, this one, I was not sure which one to bring third. Um, 
but I think, hmm. Yeah, I think I'll do this one. Um, so I had for a long time in my life, including in LA, um, no, sorry. Let me start over. Okay. So for a long time in my life, I suffered from really, really intense depression, suicidal depression. Like I could not go for like a few days without thinking about killing myself. And this was, you know, for long periods of time in my life. And especially when I lived in San Francisco, there was a long swath of time where I was just experiencing it constantly. And then my mentor and friend died and I was meditating and she appeared to me in meditative space. And when I say she appeared to me, I don't mean that she showed up as like a ghost or something like that. There was a proximity to my consciousness of a kind of green light and it would communicate to me in presence. So it wouldn't communicate to me exactly in words because it was inward, but it was in a kind of presence that it was no doubt that it was her. And it told me some exercises to do. It gave me a sort of thing to do. And, uh, just like that, the depression went away for years. And this was a depression that I'd taken medication for. I gone to therapy for, I'd done like acupuncture for, I'd done everything that I possibly could. Nothing touched it or even came close and it just went away. And what was the moment? Sorry that it was, I started, it was in conjunction with just sort of connecting with her, but also doing this sort of spiritual exercise that she told me to do. The only reason why I'm holding back what that was is because I don't want people to do it without it being contextualized in their own lives. I mean, I can tell you off, you know, the podcast, but like, um, so, but it was, it, it lifted everything. I mean, it was like someone as if someone had chronic cancer and pain from it for a few years and everybody's like, you're going to die. And then suddenly it was gone. It was like the world was seen in a completely new light. And subsequently I, well, and I had done a few things to sort of stay connected with her right when she died to, uh, that I, I sort of had an understanding of what happened after somebody died, but kind of not really. And so I started, um, doing these exercises to connect with her first. And that's when she began to, you know, appear just in my meditative space. I wasn't trying to call her up in that specific meditative space or anything like that. Although I was relating to her in these other sort of supplementary things I was doing to kind of guide her into her death experience. Um, the, so when all that went away, and everything, just the world just looked and felt and was experienced completely differently. It's just that it went away, but there was something added as mm-hmm. well. 
And I um, then read later, years later, that like a lot of people <laughs> who have like contact with the dead, like their mental illness or mental challenge or depression or whatever goes away. Wow. And when when was that in your life? Uh, 2011. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think then, like how do you articulate what was happening there in that meditation what what were you encountering what do, yeah which part of it because there's a lot to go into okay, so yeah. maybe yeah well in terms of even then your encounter with her after she passed what, yeah what do you think do you have a language for that yeah um i think when when someone dies, you know, when, when we're alive, we're, again, a kind of concentration of different factors and forces that meet in this nexus, which is a sort of address, a meeting place for these forces. And that's what makes up the place where our consciousness works, where our self works with and works through. So I wouldn't say that there is no self, but nor would I say that we're only composed of ourself. Like there's lots of other things going on there. When we die, all those, everything sort of disperses. So we actually become the constitutive forces. So first it's the forces coming in and gathering to meet us and our consciousness is working or our self is working through. And with those, when we die, it all goes back out in varying ways, different aspects of ourselves go varying ways. And so the aspect of her that was connected to me was able to find me through these other exercises that I was doing. In other words, like the sort of imprint or connective, uh, aspect of those constitutive forces that made her was able to sort of locate me because I was giving something out to it, almost like a, a sonar or a beacon, but it wasn't, it's not like, it's not as simple as saying it was her and she's out there in the universe. And then I was shining a flashlight by doing these and then she found me, but that's one way to sort of visualize it, but it was only one aspect of her. It's not her fully because she's dispersed in so many ways, you know? Yeah. And like what, um, if, if you don't mind saying, um, like what, what was underlying the suicidal thoughts and the depression? Was there a certain kind of thing that was happening that dissipated? What was that? Yeah. Um, that just, so it was kind of like, it was like a spiral of depression that felt inescapable. Mm -hmm. So it, it's funny people say spiraling out, but a lot of times I think it's spiraling in, like it's like a winding of the spring, you know? Mm -hmm. So in some ways there's a relationship there between her death and what I've just said in the articulation. Although I've only come without articulation in the past, like four or five years. I didn't have it then, mm -hmm. but, um, the suicidal thing, it would be something like um, you have one bad thought and then you're like, well, maybe I could take care of it this way. 
but no, because of this, no, because of this, no, because of this. So it's like kind of a winding of the spring and making it tighter and tighter. And it feels like that bodily, like there's a contracting that has no way out. And so the fact that there was a connection with a kind of expansiveness, like a mediating expansiveness through her death felt, I think there's an aspect of that, which is freeing, but I think that a lot of contact with the dead is a way of being in touch with a real kind of freedom. That's not merely the kinds of freedom that we have when we're embodied or incarnated in the same way that has a healing or even a palliative effect. Hmm. So, yeah. So like in the aftermath of it, um, like, what was it that, that disappeared? What was it that you were able to share? That well, one, I just didn't have these. Like those thoughts, just didn't. It, yeah. They didn't it, it connect to each other in the same way. Mm-hmm. It was like you could have a bad thought and be like, it, "It's what normal people was normal." But like what people would say that they experience, it's like you have a bad thought and it's like, "Well, yeah, that sucks." Like. But what do you do now? Well, I'm going to go get a coffee or I'm going to just like rest or I'm going to think about it more or, you know, like there was no defined pathway um, or groove that it was easy for the thought to sort of sink into that spiral anymore. It just wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that, that pathway was gone. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead, and, and also things didn't set me down that pathway. So before I would, I would be really afraid of having a kind of encounter that would set me off in that way. Or I would, even if I just woke up with kind of a bad feeling, I'd be like, Oh fuck, what's going to be the thing that happens But I would walk out the door and nothing would set me off. So it actually felt like things were brighter and lighter and easier and more friendly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're saying, well, yeah, without going into details about the, spirit the kind of the practice but there was it was a particular practice that you did you said that she taught yeah you well, yeah uh, and because is that a part that's a part of your life practices is that that's i mean i don't do it anymore yeah. but i could if i i mean uh, there have been times when i've done it over the years but yeah. it's not even necessarily a combat depression or anything yeah. anymore the depression did come back but it was it was often very circumstantial like it would be for a period of time. It wasn't like this thing that was just on at all time waiting to strike, you know, and it's never come back in that way. Not really, you know, like there would be an event that would set it off and maybe I'd be stuck in it for a few months, but it wasn't just on. And, and those events were few and far between, you know? So, but the exercise I might do just to see what it is or what else can be revealed there or what exactly is happening with it. Or maybe I feel in some way called to do it or, you know, whatever, for some other reason. Yeah. Very cool. Cause you, um, you've also walked some people through similar kind of practices, haven't you? As part of you, even Patreon, is that stuff or is it similar or different? Yeah. I know you've, you, yeah. I mean, I'll do some spiritual exercises with people. I always contextualize them, yeah. you know, um, I don't just give out, they're not prescriptive. They're like, mm. you know, I try to describe, why you would do something like this and also that everybody's results and experiences will be different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So is there a way then to link your three before I do my final one then? So you had the occult emporium. Yeah. You had the experience of 
mm-hmm. this gaze and this this encounter, and you had this encounter with the other your mentor after she died. Yeah, I mean, I think something that I brought up in all of them, in a way, is one is an invisible community. Mm-hmm. So in the first, there's these people doing all, all these things, you know, and then there's then there's the invisible community of forces that are sort of gazing into me or co-creating me. And then there's this invisible community of the dead, mm-hmm. which um, I now through that experience understand that we don't die in the way that we think that we popularly talk about dying. I mean, I've had that experience Absolutely, you know, and so I think that arc, they're all, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about these things in this way because they're all experiences. They're not, it, you can of course be wrong about your experience, right? Like I hate when people are like, my lived experience is this and so you can't deny me my lived experience. That doesn't mean that we're interpreting our lived experience, mm. right? Like we don't know any, we all have gallbladders, but we don't fucking know anything about them. Yeah. So it's like, why, <laughs> like, mm. whatever you're walking around with this thing in you all the time, but that yeah. doesn't mean you know anything about it. However, I just, I'm glad we're talking about experiences because the revealing that we're not just batting ideas around, or even that our ideas that our cultural, political or economic ideas are emerging from, nowhere or just reading but that actually they have deep roots in who we are as in our being and our living and our doing and i think that that's really important and in our feeling and so when i look at the way these are linked together they all presented i mean they're all shocking right like they're all sort of revelatory to me they all had this epiphany nature but that's just by virtue of us saying what are three formative experiences? Mm. Of course they don't have that, but they also have this invisible community aspect, but they also have this constitutive forces aspect to them. Like what is what's actually making up the world? Um, What's making up me? What's making up uh, the sort of spiritual reality? What's making up the connection between the dead and the living? And they all gather together to form uh, along with other experiences, a picture of reality that is quite unlike the one that I might just have if these experiences had not occurred. And so I try really hard to get across to people like, I don't, the things that I do and say, they're not just concepts, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's very hard, I think, for some people who are used to talking about ideas, you know, purely conceptually. Mm, yep. Yeah. Um, I see a link like, yeah, between all three of them is similar to what you're saying. And they are, there is a sense in which, and it just makes sense knowing who you are, but that these are three experiences of, um, a substantive spiritual reality or a substantial so to, to you know from the the occult thing where there's these forces these powers to this experience of um the kind of like how would you describe it as goes to the gaze of the other or was it uh, this sense of being how would the second yeah can can compose by the presence of others yes sense. yeah 
And then finally, of course, then being confronted and the gaze of this mm. this mentor and friend of yours and this, mm. you know, after her death, after her passing. They seem very Connor Habib experiences. Yeah, yeah. That makes the words mine are all about subtraction. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, let's hear your third one, and yeah. then maybe we can talk about um, all all the three sort of lined up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because the 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 one at seventeen is kind of like almost my Garden of Gethsemane experience. You know, with, not to make it sound too grandiose, but that the symbolism there is you know, giving up everything for God, you're going to die. You know, Jesus betrayed, goes to the cross. Then the second one, a 27, for me was the was the crucifixion experience, the kind of giving up mm. everything, including God. So you got that kind of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and then the third, I'd say this is connected to an experience that was around my psych- psychoanalytic um, experience. And this is the third subtraction for me, which is, so one is you lose everything for God, you lose everything, including God. And then the third was, I think, an experience where um, I got a profound sense that in order to really experience this radical lack or negation in reality, you the way to do that is through an encounter with the other so this is my grinding this is where i'm going like oh it's to love your neighbor and to love your enemy and to love your enemy if you if you if you interpret that and richard boothby's written a really good book on this and called embracing the void but to to love someone is to not only cradle the familiar dimension of the other so to like what to be honest, looks like you, right? So we 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 we, we like people because oh, they like the same music as us, and oh, they have the same politics, and oh my goodness, they love that movie as well. I mean, that's all great. So there's there's you can kind of love the element of the other that you can grasp, but to really love someone is to be open to, I would say, that dimension of them that is dangerous and uncanny and unknown, and to to not close yourself off from that. So to love. So if you could, for me, the kind of the heart of Christianity, not as a religion, but as a as a philosophical uh, position, is if you want to love the other, the big other, the other that is that we call God, if you kind of have a sense in which you want to orient yourself to the mystery of the universe, the way of doing that is to orient yourself to the mystery of the other, which means to love your enemy. So that is that is for me the fulfillment of kind of the religion, which is the end of religion in a way, which is, oh yeah, forget about loving God, love, love the other. In other words, be open to that abyss within the other. And, and of course, then also the abyss within yourself. I think the main difference between existentialism and psychoanalysis they're very closely connected Jean-Paul Sartre he he felt that anxiety and this is, this is very Heideggerian it's very interesting is that, that we get anxiety because we are we are we are surprised by our own freedom we are terrified by our own freedom that we could kind of do anything you could the vertigo was almost the experience of I could jump if I wanted to you know this experience of 
the, the, your own radical abyss and your own radical freedom is anxiety producing. And the thing that psychoanalysis adds to that is they say, well, f- yes, that's true. But first and foremost, it's the anxiety of the other person, their abyss. So before you as an infant are surprised at your own kind of uh, enigmatic dark continent, you experience that in your mother. You experience this dimension of what do they want? And the, Mo- the Mona Lisa is a great example of this, the most famous painting in the world, which is kind of connected to the enigmatic smile. There is something familiar and so loving and motherly about the Mona Lisa. And also when you really look at it, there is there is like a sense of what is she thinking? You know, there's a little almost smile and an unknowing in the painting. Um, and in this way, my third experience was through psychoanalysis, a real sense in which what I have to do and what I have to try to keep doing is remain open to that toxic, uncanny, mysterious dimension of the other. We all do it at times in our lives, but then we harden ourselves and we protect ourselves. And it was a challenge and I, one I feel that regularly, but a challenge that the challenge of, of being human is to remain always open to the hurricane, the torrent, the the flood of the others, mm. otherness. Um, and and funnily enough, I'm working on a documentary about Tammy Faye Baker at the moment. You know about, and we're finishing it up. And the reason why I was part of developing this project is because for me Tammy Faye Baker was someone who was able to remain open to the other even when she was ridiculed and mocked and attacked she somehow was constantly able to remain open to the other she never mm. closed herself mm. on it's probably the death of her to be honest but that spirit was what I felt in that moment so can you tell me about the moment a bit more of the- yeah, that's that's <laughs> difficult. That's difficult, and it was it was around a relationship, and but it, it was, was in the analysis, or it was in in and around analysis, yeah. and it was a time of deep depression okay. actually for me. And it, it it funnily enough, it connects with this. It dissipated my depression, um, and it dissipated. I don't. It's hard hard to describe how, but but it was a sense of instead of trying to protect myself from the other in all of their danger um, of going like that. I've just kind of, which is what I was trying to do. I think I'd been hurt and, and I felt I'd been hurt and I was wanting to close off and I was, and there was something that happened and it was psychoanalysis, I think helped me do it because in some ways you could say psychoanalysis is designed to help you remain open to that anxiety producing dimension of both the other and yourself and i think it kind of somehow did it I, you know psycho i don't know if psychoanalysis worked for me necessarily but there was definitely around that time that i felt myself my heart let the hardening of my heart you know started it started to dissipate i started to feel more openness to the world more courage to um, go like, okay, this, to, to love is to put yourself in danger. And there's something about committing yourself to that that is um, fundamental. Yeah. Mm. Can you maybe say, like, was there 
a thing that was said or maybe even inwardly something that you said to yourself where it awakened you up it awakened you sorry awakened you to this fact or this or awakened you to the depth of what was ahead where because it sounds like i mean obviously this is not merely uh again a switch on switch off kind of thing but you had something grow into grow in you that became unknowing that this was true. Mm. So when it became known to you, can you remember how that was phrased or articulated inwardly? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the only thing I kind of remember is that in some respects, I became much more a person who lived in the present moment as in like almost like AA you know take one day at a time there was something um that broken me in a good way uh where I guess I would say that I started to enjoy the dissatisfaction of my life um what we often do is we have alternative worlds in our head where you know if, if only x had happened or y had happened and you imagine in this alternative universe you could have been happy or whatever or content or not dissatisfied and i i remember i had this realization that in every alternative world i would have dissatisfaction and that that's wonderful right I, so there was this moment of kind of like um and it was a moment and of course you fall short of this all the time but it was a moment of of profoundly realizing that the struggle of my life and the dissatisfaction and the difficulties were also the place where all of the most enriching and deep experiences were um yeah yeah but i know that that last one of mine is the most difficult to pinpoint one was a dream one was a kind of mm -hmm. whatever this one's more yeah, uh, so it's a it's a sort of movement into the less specified, which is interesting. Yeah. The cloud of unknowing, you know, yeah. the, the moving into the less specified. I think it's like a lot came up in what you said that I wanted to talk about with like the existential, the anxiety. Um, I was thinking about how actually with the suicidal stuff, the problem was not, anxiety it was that like killing myself was the thought of that was actually a form of radical freedom is what it felt like mm -hmm. like i can do this at any time so i'm free and so it was the only way i could free myself from the spiral of contraction was thinking i can end this i can end this you know mm -hmm. and so even though <laughs> camus you know, known as, you know, part of this existential, you know, thought process, like I, and his question about, you know, the only serious question is whether or not you should kill yourself. Like to me, rather than that actually representing any kind of failure or whatever, when I was in the suicidal, it was like actually felt the only thing that was freeing was yeah. being able to consider that. So, um, uh, the, the guy, Chiran, is it Chiran? He, he once said, uh, who great pessimistic philosopher, but he said, um, you know, why commit suicide 
and rob myself of the joy of thinking about committing suicide. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. So, but I think, you know, I'm also thinking about the, um, the encounter with the other and all the sort of ugliness and all the, it's, it's funny. There's so much talk about free speech now and how we all need to be able to have it all out there and have everything we say available and why are we censoring things or whatever. And I, you know, I find myself on the one hand, I'm someone whose livelihood for a long time really depended on <laughs> the protection of, you know, sex work, the, the protection of pornography essentially, which relies on certain free speech maneuvering, you know, in the U S and elsewhere or whatever. So I was really vested in it. On the other hand, I, th- I have always thought like these like free speech, you should have everything online, all that. It's kind of like nonsense. I, I just was starting to clarify it w- with something you said, which is like the people that are always like, we need to have free speech. We need to be able to say everything we want. We need to have that movie out there where the guy is like wiping his ass with the Quran and all this kind of stuff. It's like, that's the problem with that is that it's disingenuous. They don't, the people that are saying that very often don't want free speech. They just want to be in charge of the indoctrination where I want free speech so I can get you to believe in me and come around to my way of thinking, which is very different than the actual radical presence of the other, which is I want free speech so that you can present who you are and I can present who I am. And that's not resolvable through conflict or debate or anything like that. There's no resolution there. Mm. Um, And that's not why I want free speech. I don't want free speech to get you to believe in what I say. I want free speech so you can present who you are and I can present who I am. And we can see that that's not actually going to work together very well. And therefore there's an opportunity for love. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I have to think about the free speech thing. One of the things I find interesting about, again, kind of the Freudian idea is that that also we're terrible at free speech. No, no matter, you know, there's that like all of us, um, that's what free free association is about almost is that you can't free associate. You start to free associate right. and then you stop yourself. And it's uh, the funny thing is no matter how much we often think, oh, I can speak freely, there's something repression is the name for these parts of ourselves that we find very, very difficult to speak about. Um, so yeah, but there's that, yeah, lots of interest. Yeah. You could, you could take us down a whole other different yeah, line, yeah, yeah, but I know yeah. we've been talking a long time. Yeah. But <laughs> I, well, I was also thinking, cause you brought up AA about, mm. you know, the one, the only, as far as I'm concerned, contribution that Jung has made is <laughs> that he inspired AA and that AA is a place where, it's cradled by a certain sensibility where people will say these things that they've done sometimes quite horrific. I mean, I've been to some a, a meetings. I mean, I'm not an alcoholic myself, but I was with someone who was for a long time. So I go to AA meetings with them. Um, and people would say these things that they did and in their lives and they were terrible. And we would sit in silence and listen to them. And then the next person would speak and so there was this embracing kind of love. It's not exactly what you're talking about, which is I need to actually also feel like how 
awful that might be in my own life to encounter someone like that. I need to like be able to, because it's embraced by the structure of AA, but it's, it's almost like a training ground for being able to endure the presence of the other. Yes. And I think that that's really beautiful. Um, it, it creates such a possibility there, you know, that's, that's very key. Like, yeah, I like that way of describing it. Cause whenever I talk about was mentioned there, you know, love your neighbor, that kind of, the, you know, probably one of the only real innovation in terms of the teachings and the gospels that you can't, that wasn't really there previously is this because even love of your neighbor is, but love of your enemy. But if you kind of give that a psychoanalytic reading, it is a type of thing of how do I remain in the presence of this intolerable other, like in an AA meeting, somebody saying this very, very difficult stuff. Or I think about it in very small ways. Whenever someone's listening to really loud music, I say at the beach and it kind of can sometimes be very frustrating or a party next door and you can hear the music. It's often kind of because in, in one sense you're experiencing their jouissance, they're, play, they're, they're projecting out this enjoyment and you're feeling this anxiety, you know, that's produced by it or whatever. And we find it very difficult to, to listen to the other's enjoyment. So even when someone's in AA and they're telling you about all these terrible things they did, there's usually a level of painful pleasure of jouissance in this self-destructive behavior and even in the recalling of the self-destructive behavior. And it takes a lot to be able to listen, actively listen to that other person, mm. to not defend yourself against it, to create space for them. But if they're able, if you're able to do it for them and they're able to do it for you, transformation happens. And I think that's partly why, and I call it like the, the, the zero step. Before you get to this 12 steps, step zero is a community of radical grace where the circle can somehow our, our love in it basically can 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 provide the space where say I can say these terrible things and confess my jouissance and my death drive and a group of people who'll nod their heads, eat their donuts and say, Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's so it's really something. So and this is a way that I connect these three stories of yours is that you know you're talking about them as subtraction but in some ways also they're they're sacrifice um they're mm -hmm. stories of sacrifice mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways i don't know if you would agree with this but i think to myself the radical move people talk about all the time like i would kill for that person i would i would go to war for this cause i would fight but the real radical move is saying i would rather die than kill or harm the other mm. and that's i mean a hard pill to swallow <laughs> for a lot of people but in some ways it's making your that it it's the movement of sacrifice um throughout your life alighting and revealing itself in different forms first in the company of others, this congregation that's very physical to the point where people are rolling around on the floor. Then in the dream where your body is lying still and, you know, but it, your mind and that dreamscape and the inner sensory input is quite active. And then in a sort of growing inner revelation that does not depend on anything that your body is doing at all in a way, but is rather growing within you over time because you've 
sort of inwardly tended to this seed. And I think, you know, the next revelation will probably, hmm. um, yeah, it'll probably bring you along to agreeing with everything I've said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, we'll just trade places. We'll trade places by the next revelation we each have. Yeah. But but I mean I, th- I but no, just to say like there's a there's a sacrifice that be, is becoming more and more less and less material in a way in your life, which is interesting. Um, less and less material, it seems to me, just from what you've said, and so, um, the or the way in which it's revealed, and I think uh, it. That's why when I say I'd rather die than kill, is that's th- the way that that kind of direction of sacrifice goes, where the material conditions of the world that I can change in some ways matter less than me relinquishing my desperate attempt to change the material conditions in that way. And through that move, actually I end up having more of an effect on the material conditions that everybody lives in. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Okay. I think that's, that's pretty good. I kind of, the way I describe it, as well is that for me there's there's a move towards materiality like so at my first experience was about the otherness that say god out there in the world and then i lose that and then i find the otherness in the material other but it's still about otherness but it's now locating mystery and otherness in the subjectivity of the other um and so there's an interesting move of of, yeah, and that. But anyway, all very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Mine weren't linear like yours. Mine, yeah. my, the last one happened before the second one. So, yeah. um, also, I think yours is, lends itself towards a sense of progression more than mine. Maybe might, which is just a kind of collection. Yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, I kind of the way I narrated it is, although I interestingly I did feel that kind of like there was a progressive movement in them. Interestingly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was in the way I reported it to you. Cause I yes. told you that one last. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Well, I love this conversation. I feel like this is a good way for us to have conversations too, because you know, whatever, I, I think maybe we overemphasize our disagreements sometimes, but I think they're interesting to us because there's so much overlap in so many other ways, even though there's different articulations. So when we find those points that are like dis, you know, like uh, disjunct or whatever that we're kind of like, Oh, what's that? Like, that's a weird one, you know, but I like talking about things in this way with you because the one thing that we definitely think honor and respect in each other are these like deep and profound experiences that we've had that lead us into understanding the world in our own way, rather than just imbibing, information and spitting out things that we've read, but rather become deeply considered aspects of our own being. So it's really nice to talk with you this way. Yeah. I loved it. Thank you, man. That's great. Yeah. Here's to more of these. Yeah, I feel yeah. very awkward. I'm out of my, uh, I'm out of my comfort zone, you, you know, are? talking yeah. about these weird experiences that happen in life. Yeah. <laughs> well, everybody, um, you've heard it here. Peter Rollins, completely awkward out of his comfort zone. And into the arms of the 
absence of God. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, man. All right, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>